Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am charged up about this week's show. My guest excels at empowering people to be their best selves and create fulfilling careers. And she does so in a highly accessible and practical way. No fluff here. I think that's in large part because she's led quite a varied career herself and figured it out, sometimes the hard way, how to find her true north. A four-time book author, formal presidential campaign spokeswoman, producer of a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album, and Divinity School graduate. She was described by the New York Times as an expert at reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Named one of the world's top 50 business thinkers by Thinkers 50, she writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, consults and speaks for clients including Google and the World Bank, and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. Meet my very enterprising and multifaceted friend, Dory Clark. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, Dory. Molly, it's so nice to be here. It's such a treat. Listeners are really going to thank me for this. And we do have to absolutely do a shout out for our beloved friend and mentor, Marshall Goldsmith, for all the crazy support he's given us and for the reason for us even meeting. So we, we love you, Marshall. Absolutely. And in fact, when we got to see each other recently in Reconnect post-pandemic, it was at a lovely dinner that Marshall organized. So I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. Yeah, he's really like super, super, super rock star. And folks, the only person we know on the planet Earth who actually will tell you that he's overappreciated. Okay, so that among other, many other distinctions, that's another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dory, uh, you know, you're super busy. I am grateful you're carving out time to be with us because I know your bestseller is flying off the presses shortly. So we'll hear about that in a bit. Uh, you and your work and your work do so to help other people. And before we get to uh, your exciting uh, most recent endeavors, this is a special opportunity for listeners to hear the full Dory story. And as we all know, the greatest progress comes in learning from our struggles. And I appreciate if you'd please uh, take us back to the early days and the many twists and turns of your life journey. Sure. Well, I grew up in a, a small town in North Carolina. And it was not where I wanted to be. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just always uh, was pretty unhappy being a child. I did not want, to, I, I, I didn't enjoy the limitations of childhood. My, you know, my poor sweet mother, she just like wanted me to have the best childhood. She was always like, oh, but you know, aren't you, aren't you happy, you know, getting to be a child and do child things? And I was like, no, I want to vote. I want to start a business. Like, why do I not have civil rights? <laughs> oh my God. So the early bloomer. I just, I just could not wait to get out of there. And so I, uh, schemed and finagled. And I was finally able, uh, after I finished ninth grade, 
so I was 14 years old, uh, to be able to go to college through a, an early college admission program that they had at Mary Baldwin University. And so I, I left and, and did that and spent two years at Mary Baldwin and then transferred up to Smith in Massachusetts and uh, wrapped up my college career there and graduated when I was 18 and then went on to Harvard Divinity School. Hey, wait a second. Let's just pause here. I know there's much more. So wait a second. 14 years old. And so you are the university kids must have looked at you. First of all, what did your mom think? So again, I, I give her a lot of credit. Um, it was not easy for her because she was very invested in being a parent. But uh, so I think for any parent to have their kid leave home is not an easy transition, but to have it come earlier than one would expect is challenging. But she knew that it would be the best thing for me and that I really wanted to do it. So she just kind of let, let me fly from the coop. Uh, but there was an existing program. So it wasn't just me roaming the halls. Uh, there were about 50 people in this early entrance program. So it, it, was, a, it was a known thing. And I had other people my age uh, as part of the cohort. So it was actually, honestly, uh, the first time that I really felt so happy. And like I had all of these great, cool friends and people that, uh, that understood me. Uh, it was when I went to college and, and met these other early college entrance folks. Okay, I get that. So were you just all of the whole group fairly I would say advanced socially. I mean, just, you know, I guess that was that always a natural thing. You were just kind of a grown up as a, in the body of a kid. Well, you know, I, I was raised as an only child and my parents were older. You know, my mom was uh, 41 when I was born. And my dad was 52 and it was them and me and uh, we had a housekeeper who was also in her 50s. So my peer group was uh, was older. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. I get, I get how you're, you're just, you're, you were raised as an adult. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it was, you know, an intentional thing on my parents' part, but I, I didn't really, I connected fine with other kids, but um, it was... I, I didn't really think of myself as a kid. Hmm. Did so um, from Mary Baldwin to Smith was that an easy transition? It was fine, actually. Yeah, I. Uh, so I was sixteen when I went to Smith, and you know, essentially at that point, I was quote mainstreamed uh, in terms of live, you know, living in regular dorms, and there were no, uh, there, there was not a special program. I was just part of the regular undergraduate population. And yeah, every, everything was, uh, was quite smooth there. And, and what did you study there? And then I'm really keen on the divinity school. So at Smith, I was, a, and at Mary Baldwin, I was a philosophy major and was, was always interested in big existential questions. And so to, continue asking and attempting to answer them, I went on to divinity school and I got my master's degree in theological studies. Okay. And I am not familiar with those kinds of programs. Um, 
in your mind, Dory, was this like just a, a study of interest or from a career standpoint, were you thinking you would head in that direction? I was interested in a career in academia. I wasn't exactly sure what form it would take, but I, I liked being in school. I liked, I liked uh, writing. I liked students. I loved teaching and I really admired my professors a lot. So I just naturally figured, all right, I'll stick with this. This seems good. <laughs> but uh, at one, one of the first sort of big professional setbacks that I had was after I finished my master's degree at the Div School, I applied to doctoral programs. I, it, by that point, my plan was to do English literature with a sort of emphasis in religion. And I got turned down by all of the doctoral programs. And so I suddenly had to scramble because the thing that I thought I was going to do was definitively not possible. So I had to come up with another career path really quick. Well, I can't believe they would deny you. I mean, I, they must at this point be thinking, what were we thinking? And was <laughs> that, uh, did you take that super personally or you let that ride and you're like, okay, I'm going to plan B? Well, I was I was definitely upset. I, I wouldn't say I took it personally. I mean, I I would like to think, I mean, I try to think that like I hope that all the people who are on the admissions committee are just basically spending the rest of their lives crying and regretting their idiocy. But I acknowledge that probably they don't even remember my name and feel just fine <laughs> about having rejected <laughs> me. <laughs> but, you know, I can, I can dream about their, their long-lasting suffering. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I, I think that ultimately um, we, we all think we're, we're pretty unique and pretty special. And, you know, I know I would have done a good job, but the truth of the matter was I had really good GRE scores. Uh, it's the you know the admissions test for uh, for humanities doctoral programs, but there was a GRE subject test, and I had not been an English major. I had been a philosophy major, and so I didn't do very well on the subject test. And if I had to hazard a guess, I think that that probably may have torpedoed me, or at least contributed to it. And you know, okay. If you if if that's how you want to judge people, then uh, by those metrics, I was not the best candidate. But um, you know, I, I think I think for a lot of things, what the way that I interpreted it was not that there was something wrong with me. It was that there was something wrong with them, and there was something wrong with how they were judging people. And I think it's so important, you know, in the corporate world or, or anywhere, you know, when I have executive coaching clients, sometimes they hit a roadblock, they get rejected from something or turned down. And I think the worst thing that we can do is to internalize that message and say, oh, gosh, you know, I really need to reevaluate things. Maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I have a, you know, you know, maybe I'm just average. Maybe I'm below average. And the, the truth is, like, who are these gatekeepers? Do they know more than you? I mean, oftentimes not. In my new book, The Long Game, I tell the story about a client of mine, this wonderful woman, and she had been writing for a high-profile publication for six months. She'd been doing it for free, nights and weekends. She'd written 35 articles for them. And at the end of six months, her editor, who, mind you, is two years out of undergrad, fires her 
from her free position and tells her, sorry, we just don't think you're creative enough. And it's like, oh, really? You know, and, and of course, it's this like devastating message to receive. But the most important thing that I told my client, and I just want to, you know, like bang, bang the pots and pans against the wall here is like, you know, who the F are these people? What do they know? They don't know more than you. Like, I, I just want to take all those people and make them live to regret their callous behavior. Because if someone's trying to be a gatekeeper on you, I'm just gatekeeper them right back. Like, just, just push back. And this wonderful client of mine did that. And she got back on the horse. And within a few months, she was writing for an equally prestigious publication that she continues to write for. But we cannot take those people and their word as definitive. Uh, I love, I just love the power that you have in your speaking and for all the listeners out there that, you know, you really own that. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in the story and not take a step back and say, hey, what is this? And oh, by the way, the struggles um, are the things that help us, you know, kind of see how good we can be. And they're there for a reason. And um, gosh, the people are so lucky to be working with you. Um, before we get more into the client side, to, so, you know, just take us through, you know, this because you've done some really cool things. So just help people, you know, what you got into and then, you know, how you moved around. Because I think sometimes people just think, well, this perfect thing just happened. The red carpet rolled out and Dory just like got on it. It just was flying around. So maybe bring that to life for people, please. Well, after I had my unfortunate experience getting turned down from graduate school, the thing that I came up with that I would do instead was be a newspaper reporter. And so I got a job at a paper in Boston and I held that for a year and then I got laid off. And so I had to come up with something else. So I I really wanted to stay in journalism, but it just it didn't work out. The there were not jobs to be had, unfortunately. And so I ended up switching over and working in politics, uh, which is the subject that I had been covering. And I was the press secretary or the communications director on a couple of pretty high profile campaigns, but they both lost. So at the end of that, I had to find something else to do. So I became the executive director of a nonprofit and did that for two years, during which time I incubated the idea that maybe I would start my own business. And ultimately, that is what I did in 2006. And so for the past 15 years, I've worked for myself doing a combination of marketing strategy, consulting, and executive coaching, and keynote speaking, and teaching, and writing books, and, and all the things. Yeah, you're just like genius. And I just love this. Well, I got a job as a newspaper reporter. Okay, so let's just go back a bit. You love journalism. You love writing. And are you just fearless? You're like, here I am. My name is Dory and I want to work here at this paper. You know, and, and I say this because I think sometimes this you obviously have an, um, an inner level of self-assuredness that look at, you know, I can, I can make this happen. And I thought for folks listening, that's not always so easy. You know, they can kind of listen to you do it. So was that just something where you just kind of connected the dots and um, how did you network to get into it? Just tell people a little bit about the inside scoop there. So after getting turned down by the doctoral programs, I realized that I needed to get some more professional skills 
fast. <laughs> and so I uh, decided I would do some internships. And so I, I basically took another year, uh, another academic year to try to get more uh, experience so that I could get a good job. So the essentially fall semester, quote unquote, for a three month period, I did an internship at the Massachusetts State House where I worked for a state legislator. And in the spring, I got an internship, you know, and I did that the old fashioned way, just, you know, writing cover letters and sending resumes and things like that. Uh, I got an internship at Boston Magazine doing writing and research, you know, the, the things, the things that they'll, they'll let you do as an intern. It's like you write the, um, the articles that are like a hundred words long. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, that's my byline. That's amazing. Um, and then that summer I managed the reelection campaign of the state representative. And in the fall, when it was done, I was able to get a job with the paper based on the clips that I had accrued, you know, the, the sort of uh, sample articles that I had accrued working at Boston Magazine. And also I had started doing a little bit of freelance writing because I had networked my way into meeting the editor of the paper. And so I had done a few freelance pieces. And then when a job opening came up, uh, I was able to land it. Oh, so you were very enterprising. You know, this networking thing, and I, you know, I just think you're amazing at it. So a, f- a few words for folks. Is, was that always natural for you uh, t- to do it? Do you love it? Like, wh- how do you think about that? Networking, I would not say was natural for me per se. I think like a lot of people, I recognized that networking was an important thing. I'm like, okay, I guess I should do that. People say this is a thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I also did, you know, what I will say is is a common mistake, which is conflating networking with the quote unquote networking event. And so early on, you know, like when I started my business, I would do things like, okay, I guess what I need to do is pay $45 to go to this chamber of commerce breakfast that starts at 7:30 in the morning downtown and i mean it was just it was like a nightmare you know it'd be like 500 people you don't know any of them you you know are so sleepy i mean i'd have to get up at like 6:30 to to wake up and to get there and you're, you're at this thing, you're making uncomfortable conversation with strangers. And then you hear, you know, blah, blah, blah from the Federal Reserve Bank, give a talk. And then everybody has to truck it out of there to get to work. Like it, it's just, it's just dumb. But I did so many of those because I thought, oh, well, that's networking. That's what you have to do. And so, you know, we all need to kind of put in our time in that way, I guess, to, to learn. But it, it was not anything that was enjoyable. It was something that I made myself do. But what I came to realize, and in fact, I have a whole chapter in my new book, The Long Game, talking about this and about what I consider the right way to build relationships. But I came to really understand that while networking is essential, you know, while, while relationship building is essential, there are a lot of ways to do it. And most of them do not look like the quote unquote networking event where you have to just plunge into a room full of strangers and start talking to them, which is something that I still find excruciating. And so I really have tried instead to over-index on things that I enjoy or that I find much more comfortable, like hosting 
gatherings, whether it's like a Zoom cocktail party during COVID or uh, perhaps an in-person dinner party like one that, that you recently attended, Molly. Oh, yeah, that was super fun. Uh, Dory pulled together this killer group. And for folks who may not have experienced that, if you get, you know, eight, 10 people, you actually go th- around as part of the, the event and just do short introductions, you know, which is a, just a great way to get to share about yourself. It gives you some practice, by the way, also of how you would like talk about yourself in, you know, three, four, five minutes. And then you, you kind of make all these instant new friends and, um, and, you know, to Dory's point, you can kind of control it, right. You can, um, uh, put it out there. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, so the paper, the, the, the nonprofit, I'm, I'm curious how working in that sector, was that transforming in any way? Some people have a real epiphany, you know, when they're working with, with nonprofits, uh, I'm wondering what your experience was like. Well, my nonprofit epiphany was that running a nonprofit is exactly the same thing as running a small business. <laughs> I somehow hadn't really <laughs> thought of that. It's like, oh, no, it, liter- it literally is the exact same thing, except you just keep reinvesting money in the business rather than taking profit out. And I, uh, what that made me realize was, oh, Okay, this is like training wheels here. This is this is me learning on somebody else's dime how to run my own business. I could do this for myself. And especially, you know, running this organization was extraordinarily stressful. I don't think I've ever, you know, including working on presidential campaigns, I don't think I've ever been under such stress because it was just it was existential stress because I was, you know, the board was not so much of a fundraising board. And so the entire weight of this organization and its survival was basically on me. And it felt really oppressive. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized, oh, wow, I, I could, you know, I am 100% sure that one way or another, I could, number one, make as much or more money as I am at this really low paid nonprofit if I was working for myself. You know, there's nothing like a low bar, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> And number two, I could do it with less stress. And so it was, it was really an appealing prospect. So, I mean, I always, a part of me sort of laughs when, you know, people talk about, oh, but it's so risky to start to work for yourself. Oh, you know, how did you do it? I'm like, dude, literally anything I did, I would make more money than I made at this nonprofit. <laughs> like it, it was, it was only uphill from there, you know? That is phenomenal. And pointing out for listeners, the connecting the dots, you know, you go back, you do something, you never, you know, you you start to realize, wow, well, this is the way you learn and knit it together. And I just want folks to know whatever you've done, right? It's people think, well, how will people believe my story? I'm like, you have to believe your story, right? So if you can connect the dots for how, what you learned, you know, what you liked, what you didn't like and build it together, you can really pull together this very unique story of yourself and not worry about it not being the kind of story that people are supposed to have when they're successful, right? And um, I love that. (laughs) I love that low bar. So then talk about your early business days and your learning. So I think you've been, you know, in your business, you know, and, and folks, when I, before I knew Dory that well, I was just always wowed, seriously wowed by her because it was always in service to the the audience or the listener or the other person. And that's a really special thing about you, Dory. It's not about you. It really doesn't come off about you. And I think that authenticity is, you know, I I would think is really key to to, uh, your success. 
That is very kind, Molly. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just got lost so in your in your lovely compliments. Well, that's great. I'm great to appreciate you. Um, so the you know the starting of your um, you know the business and and how you got going because uh, you scrapped it together um, in 15 years and it's super thriving now. So just help people. Uh, you know, I always tell people learn um, learn from others' mistakes and make new ones yourself. So uh, I imagine that um, you have some gems to share for folks if they were thinking about going off on their own. Ah, yes, yes. The early days. So basically what I did in the early days, one one thing that um, I like to tell people I would absolutely have them do the opposite is I was just so consumed with finishing things up at, at the nonprofit and handing over the reins and executing everything well. I mean, you know, that's a good thing, but I did not even think about starting to get clients until I left my job. And so I, you know, to, to be fair, I'll give myself some credit here. I very much had it on my mind to try to educate myself before I left. So for about a year, I had been taking like adult ed classes and checking out a gazillion books from the library about starting a business and what I needed to know about business. I took, you know, these classes about you know, how to do QuickBooks and how to create a business plan and all kinds of things like that that were, that were helpful. Uh, but yeah. I didn't actually get any clients. I didn't even start thinking about it. And this is a, is a big mistake. I would really suggest to people, like, it's not, it's not unethical. It's not problematic. That's what nights and weekends are for. But start to, to bring in business because otherwise, there's always going to be a gap in terms of how long it takes you to get your first client. And so there's going to be an income gap. And the the shorter that can be, you know, if you start to get clients before you officially leave, the better. And it helps you validate the premise of what your business is doing. I had to pivot my business several times in the first couple of years. Originally, I actually thought that what I would be doing was more along the lines of political consulting uh, and political campaign communi- uh, communication consulting because that was what I had done most recently prior to working at the nonprofit. But it just so happened I was not getting people hiring me for that. What, what they were hiring me for instead was uh, a lot of nonprofits and a lot of government agencies were reaching out and saying, oh, well, but do you consult for us? And of course, I, I thankfully, I was not dumb. And so I was like, sure, I can do that. <laughs> but it meant I had to sort of switch. I mean, my original business card said political consulting. And it's like, oh, I better print new cards. <laughs> so I did that. And then over the first couple of years as well, a lot of the work that I did originally was kind of more in the vein of PR consulting, because again, that was what I knew. That's what I was familiar with in terms of doing uh, work as a press secretary on campaigns. And I quickly realized, this was the mid-2000s, that there was a big shift going on that I needed to be mindful of. And that was, number one, the rise of social media, which was new. And number two, the decline of the print media. Because clients were very, very used to getting a lot of coverage in newspapers. I mean, they didn't even have to do much. They'd be like, well, we're having a press conference. And then they'd expect like 10 reporters to show up. And 
at a certain point by the mid 2000s, that was not a thing anymore because all the reporters had been fired. There was no one to come to their press conference. And so they would hire me. And, you know, some clients were reasonable and understood, but there were some clients that basically thought I was, an, you know, like an idiot because I was not getting 10 reporters to come to their press conference. And they were like, but two years ago, we did blah, blah, blah. I'm like, they're all fired. But <laughs> this, this would not satisfy rapacious clients who want press coverage. So I quickly realized that I needed to get out of PR consulting and into other things, including social media and overall marketing strategy, or else I just have a sad life of being blamed for things I couldn't control. Love to see the writing on the wall. Okay, way to go. Close the door, open new ones. And so that's awesome that you were earlier in in this whole social media craze. And, you know, I guess some commentary about what you see in social media now, you know, what you love about it, what works for you, things perhaps you don't love so much about it. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, of, of course, social media has changed tons in the past 15 years. And it's become a lot more ubiquitous part of our lives. It was interesting to see what was what was a big thing 15 years ago, and you know what what has sort of survived and what hasn't. Uh, Twitter, of course, was was just like the the new amazing thing, and now Twitter has become, I would say, a relatively stagnant platform. I mean, it's still it's still highly used if you're in the news media and to a certain extent, if you're in government, but beyond that, I, I would say it's a relative non-factor um, compared to other things like Instagram or LinkedIn. But yeah, I mean, more than anything, actually these days, what I like to emphasize with my clients is that social media is useful. I mean, it's important as a kind of signaling device around social proof and credibility and things like that. So, you know, I'm not a fan of like when, you know, when people are just like, well, you know, I don't, I don't think social media is useful, so I don't do it. Like, I mean, okay, that's fine, but just recognize like, you know, you might not get a book contract, but you know, it just depends on your goals. Um, but I also think it's easy to spend too much time on social media. You know, like if you're, the difference between you spending 15 minutes a day, which is good, and you spending 23 hours a day, like, <laughs> like that, yeah. that it's, it, it's not adding a huge amount of value for you to do the, the other like 22.45 hours. Um, it's, it's actually can be a pretty deleterious rabbit hole. What I instead like to encourage people that I work with to focus on, which I think is far more valuable and important long-term, but is often hidden and talked about less in the public discourse, is to focus on building their opt-in email list. I think that's a lot more important from a marketing perspective. Uh, huge advice, everyone writing that down. Okay, focus on the email list, folks. Um, okay, the, uh, okay, so I, I, um, you want to talk a little bit about your client work, and then I want to talk about the book because it's very exciting what's going on in the book. So, anything you want to share about uh, the joys of your client work, or, or give folks a little bit more insights in the kind of work that you do? Yeah, well, in many ways, actually, the client work that I do inspired the book because I realized that I wanted to write the long game. Because so often for the executive coaching clients that I work with or the folks who are part of my recognized expert community, which is an online course and community that I run, I mean, they're, they're all terrific people and really 
smart professionals who are working to get their ideas heard, working to build their platforms. And what I would see really frequently was often a kind of pervasive sense that, you know, I, I'd talk to them one week and, you know, we'd come up with a plan. And then two weeks later, they'd be like, okay, so what else should I be doing? What should I be working on now? And it's like, um, probably that thing we talked about two weeks ago, because two weeks is not enough time <laughs> to do, you know, what, like whatever this huge thing is that we're talking about, like, you know, expand your writing for high profile publications or, or something like that. Like, there was just this this feeling that I think a lot of people have, and certainly I have been there. I have experienced it, where you feel like, okay, I'm not making progress fast enough, or oh, but you know, this person's doing this thing. Maybe I should do the thing, or oh, but I did the thing, but you know, I don't know if it's really working. It didn't really get enough hits, so maybe I should try the other thing. And nine times out of ten, the answer is just keep doing the thing longer. Just keep at it. Because if we change strategy too frequently, we're never going to see results, no matter how good the strategy was in the first place, because we're pivoting before we give things a chance to work. And I wanted to write a book to help encourage people through what can feel like the dark times where you're not really sure if something is working and to help them get through to the other side so that they can actually attain some of the goals that they are valuing most. That's so amazing. What is it, um, Dory, that you see? I mean, if you say it's kind of obvious, you know, like what's worthwhile takes working at it. Doesn't it's not a snap of the fingers kind of thing. And I don't think anyone would say, "Oh, you know, I'm going to miracle make this happen in ten days." But what do you think are the top challenges for people in you know thinking big and executing on it? Well, I think there's some interesting points to unpack here, Molly. So I'm glad you're identifying it. One, I think you're exactly right. Sometimes people actually do hesitate to identify big goals. And it's interesting. The, the whole first section of my book, The Long Game, is about creating more white space. And the reason that I include this first is that, first of all, you know, it might be uh, obvious, but when it comes to strategic thinking, it's not like you need a huge amount of time you know, we're not telling anyone, oh, well, you need to have a, you know, a monastic retreat for the next six months. <laughs> that is that is nice, but not necessary. But you do need a little time, at least. And the problem with so many modern professionals is literally they have no time because they fill every crevice and crack and interstitial moment with meetings, with emails, with different obligations so that there is just literally not a moment to think. And sometimes this is because of all the things we know, like, yes, we are all too busy, but sometimes it's actually because it serves us to be that busy. And what I mean by that is that it can be really uncomfortable and sometimes even painful to ask hard questions like, is this the right path? Is this actually what I should be doing? Or I know I need to do X, but oh my God, I don't know how to do X. And those things are really hard to grapple with. And I think for some of us, at least, there is a tendency to just keep our heads down and keep doing the thing we're doing so we don't have to ask those questions. It's easier to just say, oh, well, I'm too busy. I am just focused on doing the things I have to do. 
And when we do that, it is a little bit of an anesthetic. And if we really want to be identifying the right goals for ourselves, if we really want to end up at the end of our lives in the place we want to go, we need to get really clear about that and you know some of the hidden benefits that we're deriving from busyness so that we can peel that away and actually start to be honest with ourselves about what we do want. Oh, I love that we're here at this point because you know I see this with folks and um you know, and, and there is a balance, you know, it isn't about just lounging, you know, in a chair and, you know, breathing it all in all, all day long. Um, but I see so many people in motion, confusing activity for progress. And, um, you know, I call it affectionately the gerbil wheel. Um, and, you know, giving yourself permission. And for the people who you, listeners may know of people you see doing this, you know, somehow catching their attention and just saying, Hey, you know, it, 20 years from now, if you look back, is this kind of, is this part of the story that you want to have? Um, and not to do so in a way, I can't believe I'm doing this. It's, it's part of the journey. Um, but I think the ability to eject oneself from, from that, um, path, you know, it takes intentionality, it takes some courage, uh, it takes support. And I know that, that um, like people like you, frankly, are a huge support for people. So I do really want to encourage folks to take in what Dory just said here, because this is where it starts. It isn't about other people making us busy. It is about like sitting back saying, hey, do I want to drive or do I want to be driven? So this is just a huge, a huge, huge thing. So true. So did, uh, in your life, Dory, when, how did you create the intentionality with what you want to do? And, you know, I, and I feel this is probably one area I feel really good about for my own self. I have, I'm pretty clear on like what I do, where I spend my time, who I spend my time with. And it, I'm pretty joyous. Like I fly out of bed and I'm like super happy and I just want everyone to be like living the dream and happy too. That's great. Um, how do, so how do you run it, Molly? <laughs> Well, I got, I had a, a situation where I just think um, the, the physical sleep and food and, you know, I kind of spent four years like working for four solid years and I thought, okay, this is not working. I'm not a, as nice of a person as I know I am. I'm just <laughs> yeah. all over the place. You know, you just, it was not pretty, you know, I have to be honest with you and for, for folks listening, I mean, it was really not pretty. I mean, things, the way I was, the things I did, I mean, like stuff I just like, ugh, I'm just like. I cannot believe I was that way. At the same time, I've let that go. I can't crucify myself for stuff that wasn't great. And so I think, you know, for, I know what I value. And I also, you know, I, I I'm not someone who is, um, I guess, overwhelmed with um, um, money for money's sake or fame for fame's sake. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, that doesn't do anything for me. So I, I feel like maybe it's a little easier to avoid some of that, you know, it can get kind of infectious or intoxious, I guess, when you, um, you know, is it ever enough sort of thing? So, um, you know, and, and I just, I guess I feel like I've been lucky with some really grounded friends too. So, you know, I, I cringe at how I, I had been at times and I feel now I've, I've got a good crew of role models and people to kind of keep me in sync. That's um, great. You know, but I, I'm I'm curious how yours, you know, and I, I have to say you're someone who I just think is 
so diligent and so bloody like productive. I, I mean, I'm in awe. I'm for folks writing a book, by the way. Like Dory's got all the tips. Like just follow Dory. I mean, no one has you have just masterminded like this genius way to approach work and in just the smartest way and and really practical, not highfalutin, you know, annoying language. Just really accessible to to anyone who wants to 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 um, look into it. Thank you. It's really kind. It's true, Dory. Uh, so say a little bit, you know, so I, I, um, I'm curious about the, the, the three steps. We, we did this first one, you know, take us through the, uh, the other two. Yeah. So when it comes to the long game and, and becoming a long-term thinker, as we discussed, clearing out white space is the first step, right? In the, in the sense that we can't add more water to a glass that's already full. So we've got we've to remove something so we have a little bit of space. The second is identifying and focusing on the goals that really matter to you and getting clear about what that looks like, sort of teasing it apart from perhaps the autopilot that you may have been operating on or things that uh, society or family or friends seem to think are good to figure out what we think is good. And then section three, the final section is what I call keeping the faith, because inevitably along the journey, there are going to be setbacks, there's going to be detours, there's going to be something unexpected. And we need to know how to deal with that so that we can actually persevere or not. We might decide we want to change our focus, but, but somehow we need to be smart and strategic about how we're responding to those changes and those setbacks rather than just being deflated and saying, oh, well, I guess that didn't work or, oh, I guess I'm not good enough, which I think is the worst response. I think folks who are listening are probably thinking, I think all of us have said that, you know, and maybe what you should then say is, you know, really make yourself feel bad. Dory, I think that's ridiculous. Why am I even saying that? You know, you got to come up with some way to, to like pull yourself out of it. You know, and I, and I, I have to say the, to be really intentional about people around you who, you know, are going to believe in you and pull you up and keep you light. Um, you know, I don't, Dory, I know you do that for a lot of people who are some of the people in your life who, you know, sometimes you're kind of down there in the mud or in the weeds, you know, and who are the folks who maybe keep you light? Well, I think, you know, I mean, of course, uh, this is, this is probably the, the answer that a lot of people have. Uh, but you know, my mom is great <laughs> about all of this. <laughs> she's, uh, she's very loyal. And if, um, if there's been some kind of a, a setback or if someone's causing trouble, I mean, you know, my, my mother just goes like full bore mafia. She's just like, I hate her. I'm going to kill her. <laughs> and she's like, you know, they're not, they're not good enough for my precious princess. And I'm like, that's right, mama. That's right. <laughs> oh, we love our moms. It's so great. My mom's listening to the show now. Thank you, mom. My mom is like the like biggest fan. Always gives me feedback. Oh, it's so great. She's so great. So that's fabulous. And I'm, I, um, I'm grateful for her in supporting you that way. Uh, um, I, you know, it's, and it's, it's, I just have to say, it's great to have that familial tie, Dory. I can, I, I, I can feel it like when you lights you up when you talk about your mama and it's, um, that's a very special thing. Yeah, I do feel very lucky. And in fact, it's great. It's great that your mom is, is listening. I do a weekly 
interview show for Newsweek and my mom pretty much every week. I mean, unless she has some appointment or something like every week she's on there and she'll text me afterwards and she'll, she'll give me like, you know, <laughs> ma- mama's 411 on it. And I would see probably nine times out of 10, she'll be like, well, your guest seemed very nice, but you know, I think the only thing that could have made it better is if, if you talked more about yourself. <laughs> I'm like, thank you, Mama. I know you would like the interview to be about me, <laughs> but uh, technically I'm supposed to be interviewing this other person. And Mama's like, but you're more interesting. <laughs> My God. Well, now we like triple love your Mama. That's like the best thing ever. Oh That's God. right. So, so That's I think so fabulous. In, in, in the interest of, of pleasing your Mama, Molly, we need to we need to make sure we gotta we gotta have you answer all of these questions too. So what, yeah, so yeah. I'm curious, you know, t- tell us a little bit more. You're talking about your friends who who buck you up. What what does that process look like if you're if you're feeling down about something or or whatever? What are what are the steps that you take to snap yourself out of it? Yeah, so I appreciate that. I have gotten to a point where it is pretty habitual for me to be pretty light. It, it um, and it doesn't mean I, I when I look at some of the news or the climate or what have you that I because I'm a marshmallow so it really does affect me. Um, so I, I actually don't listen to a lot or read too deeply in some of those things because I go it really I really I feel bad. Yeah, um, that's the same the reason I don't I, watch yeah. Disney movies. <laughs> like people always well, die and like animals and like everybody's in peril. It's very stressful to me. Yeah, I, I am. I, I I would find episodes of Miami Vice super scary. So I I I can't. I just can't. People are like it's only a show. I'm like, no, it's real. I can't. I can't differentiate the two. So you know, I I'm someone who like I'm pretty active. Um, so the working out and the yoga and the meditation, I can I find that really easy ways for me to just have a reset. Um, and then I you know I, tennis is a huge thing for me. I have a tennis community, and I'm super close with my family and my sisters, you know, both my mom and dad. So I feel like, you know, I can turn to folks and, you know, just in an instant, like, it's just not that big of a deal. So, I, you know, again, I feel very fortunate that way. I think I, I guess I, mean, I have a decent size network, but I have a relatively small number of very deep connections and that's all I really need. I mean, I'm an introvert by design. I really derive my energy from within. Um, so I'm not someone who, unlike Marshall, our friend who has like just derives energy from the whole universe because he knows so many people. Um, but I appreciate your asking. That's uh, I, Thankfully, um, I have to be honest, hasn't been a big struggle. Um, so I do feel very grateful for that. Yeah, that's great. Um, one thing, you know, this book is the, is there's an individual um, lens for, you know, since you do work with organizations and you, and you speak and all, you know, I'm just kind of wondering for, organizations, the leaders of those bigger organizations, a message you might have for them to help play a longer game in their enterprises? Well, one of the things that I talk about in the long game, which, you know, ultimately the long game is a book for for individual professionals to think about their careers, but the same principles very much apply at the enterprise level as well. I am a really big fan of Google's 20% time, which when Google first went public, you know, also about 15-ish years ago, this was something that got talked about quite a bit. It's the idea that employees would spend about 
a fifth of their time on these kind of more speculative projects outside the parameters of their regular job description. And it is also true that lots of Google employees don't actually do that anymore, uh, which I think is, is an important footnote because even at a company that purportedly is encouraging it, you still have to be incredibly self-motivated to guard and protect that time. I think that's a really important lesson. But if you are a leader, I think you could create a policy at your company or your organization for something similar. And I think you should do it in your own personal life as well. Because if COVID showed us nothing else, what it showed was that crazy, bizarre, unexpected things can happen. We don't know what the things are that are going to happen. And so we need to cross-train. We need to be like a Swiss army knife where we are preparing for anything that could happen. And the way that we do it is by professional development, by exploring new ideas, by testing out new possibilities. And if you are doing that and encouraging that to be done throughout the entirety of your organization... That is incredibly powerful. And for all of us, if we want to safeguard our careers, if we want to mitigate risks, one of the best ways to do it is to keep learning and growing and to use our 20% time instead of just plowing it mindlessly into answering more email, which most people do. Uh, it's actually, you know, what is a new thing you could learn or try or develop that's going to make you more valuable and more flexible in the future? Love it. Love it. Love it. Sage advice. I hope everyone takes it. Uh, okay. We're going to segue quick for the say it skillfully part of the show, Dory. What's a tough conversation uh, or situation on your mind? Well, one that is always a little bit tricky is once you start writing for high profile publications, sometimes people will reach out and you know, there's the strangers in the PR pitch, but sometimes it's people that you know, uh, and they will want to get coverage. And so it's always a little bit of an awkward dance because you can you can do some people, but not not everyone. And so figuring out how to say no about something like that to someone that you have a relationship is always a little bit of an awkward uh, question. Ugh. I love this one. Okay. Let me just throw this out as uh, just fodder. So preserving the relationship, right, is is top of mind. And um, so I think out of the gate, let's just call Susie. Ah, it's so great. I appreciate your making this ask. And first and foremost, I want you to know that our relationship is what matters most to me. So I always want to do the right thing for the two of us to stay in great relationship, right? So that just keeps it high and like what matters most. Helping people appreciate content wise where it may or may not be a fit and not making it personal can be a way to just help people appreciate that that's what you've been asked to do as opposed to I'm making a call about you personally and keeping it topical. The wording might be, I get this sometimes and I'm a little bit uncomfortable. So if you're a little bit uncomfortable, be uh, open about it because the, uh, or the publication is really looking for some specific things. And in this case, I looked at it and it's really not something that's a fit. So I don't want you to take it personally at all. I think you're fabulous. If there's other ways I could help, that would be great. But I just don't think it's a fit for the organization. Something like that. How's that land for you? Nice, Molly. Thanks for knocking it out of the park for me here. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you. So listen, let's just uh, take us home here. Um, 
A few questions uh, as reflection. Looking back at your life, assuming that you are where you are, Dory, is there a regret or a particular do-over you'd like to share? Well, you know, mostly I feel pretty good about the, the decisions that I've made. I think that probably one, uh, one regret is there's a, a particular relationship that I was in, a romantic relationship, where I just stayed too long. And I think that I probably, I did end it, but I probably should have ended it sooner and it would have led to less heartache. So I, I think, uh, I think learning, learning to, to pull the trigger uh, more quickly is something that, uh, that I might've done. We could all relate to that. Thank you for that. Uh, Dory, what's the biggest compliment someone's given you? The biggest compliment that someone has, has given me is you know, I'm trying to think about a particular one. I, th- I think, you know, the, the compliments that, that matter, of course, are the ones that are um, really about your character and about the ones, uh, just about the, the way that you treat people, I think. And so that's, that's what I appreciate because that's what I'm really trying to optimize for. That's great. Um, and, and lastly, um, what was it like for you to share your journey today with listeners? Well, I appreciated the, the opportunity, Molly. I, I share with you a goal of trying to demystify the process of how people end up where they are. Um, my book, Stand Out, which was my second book, is really a book about thought leadership and how people get to be thought leaders or recognize experts in their field. And for me, I really wanted, I wanted to try to understand the process myself because I felt like there were a lot of people who I admired and who were kind of famous in their fields, but the way that the story often gets told about how they were successful was just like, oh, well, then suddenly they were successful. Or like the alternative is like, but they've always been successful. And neither of those things are true. And so I really wanted to sort of trace back like the before and after, like, no, literally, what did you do? And then what happened? And then what happened? And so I love how you were, you know, sort of actively pursuing that so people can get a sense of the nuances that are involved in that. That's so amazing. We could go on and on. Folks, doryclark.com. Yes. And is there a site for the book, Dory? Help uh, listeners with where they should go to to learn more, please. Yeah, absolutely, Molly. Uh, The book, again, is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And it is available in all the bookie places that that one can get books. And for folks who are interested in applying the principles of strategic thinking to their own life and their own career, uh, I do have a free resource, which is the standout, uh, or sorry, the long game strategic thinking self-assessment. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. That's amazing. I encourage listeners to have the courage to play the long game. Um, I am sure Dory's latest book is going to help you embrace the learning, creating, connecting, and reaping, and you'll create a fulfilling career. Thank you, Dory, for sharing your journey, being part of the solution. Uh, If I might be helpful, you know how to reach me. I am cheering for you. You take good care. Thank you so much, Molly. And my thought for the week in honor of Dory, show faith in yourself to lead others to have faith in you. 
And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Dory's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 